Father, that song is an understatement of our vast, utter dependence upon our great God. We are frail, and we are weak, and we are sinful. And you are awesome in your majesty and in your greatness. God, I ask that you would give us a greater vision of who you are this morning, that we might truly worship the living God and be so much less impressed with ourselves and so much more impressed with who you are. Lord, we pray that you would meet with us in this space that you have provided. We do not wanna be those who play church. We wanna hear from the voice of God. And so I ask that you would prepare every heart and every soul here, whether they know you or whether they don't. God, that we would hear from you, that you would personalize this message. And Father, I pray for your hand of enablement and blessing, your hand of favor and freedom as I preach, that your spirit would just use me and guide me. So meet with us, we pray, we ask humbly in this place, in Jesus' name, amen. There are upwards of 230,000 miles of train track stretching across this great nation of ours. Millions of pounds of freight is hauled every day, equipment, materials, supplies, and passengers. And unfortunately, train mishaps do happen from time to time. According to the Federal Railroad Administration Office for Safety Analysis, last year alone there were 1,277 derailing incidents. And there's many causes for when a train derails. It can be signal failures. Some can be weather-related, believe it or not, as the weather gets hot like it is right now. Tracks get hot and causes the rail to curve away. It's called sun kinks, and the cars will fall off the rail. Sometimes there's equipment failures. Switches that are not lining up all the way and a train tries to go down two trails, two rails at the same time. That doesn't work real well. Track failures, defective missing cross ties, broken rail, worn switch points, etc. And human error. Sometimes it's a device called a derail. Here's a picture of it. And this is to prevent unauthorized train movements is what that is. The problem is sometimes the workers mistakenly leave that on the track. And then the train rolls over it and goes right off of that track onto the ground. Then there's the cost of cleanup after a derailment. Many days to fix involve big equipment like cranes, may involve laying new track. Here's a picture of a derailment in the Bronx, New York. Metro North passenger train derailed last year. Seven cars and the locomotive left the track. It took one and a half days to haul all the cars and get them righted and back on track and three days to have commuter service back up again. Sometimes, though, it's not just trains that derail. Sometimes it's people. And sometimes it's lives. Sometimes you get off track. Sometimes I get off track. Sometimes we derail spiritually. And we're just barreling straight ahead into something we shouldn't be doing. And we break a little too late and too little. Sometimes we take a turn in a wrong direction and we get ourselves in trouble. Or we pick up speed, go somewhere, do something God never intended us to do. Sometimes we run straight into temptation. And there's a derail that the enemy has laid on the track. For some of you this morning, you got off track this past week. 
you found yourself where you should not have been, doing what you should not have been doing, saying what you should not have been saying. And spiritually, you got off track. You had a spiritual derailment, and maybe for some of us, we've made a mess of things. We don't know where to start. We don't know where to begin. Scott, how do I get back on track? You don't know what I've done. No one knows what I've done. How do I make things right with God? How do I make things right with others? Where do I start when I feel like my spiritual life has come to a screeching halt? The nation of Israel knew what that was like. They were prone to derailment. From time to time in the history of their nation, they knew what it was like to get off track. They also knew what it was like to suffer for it. And Nehemiah chapter 9, they desperately want to get back on track. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. The nation of Israel, this remnant of people that find themselves back in the land, are tired of all of the suffering due to their sin. And they've gathered together, and that's where we find them in Nehemiah 9. And they've gathered together, and they're confessing their sin, and they've gathered together, and they're reading the Word of God, and they've gathered together, and they're reviewing and learning from their history, because they don't want to go back there. And we pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all this hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just, in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have dealt wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. How do you get back on track when we've had a spiritual derailment? What they teach us is that this, number one, renew your appreciation for the Almighty. There has to be an attitude change toward God and who He is. Verse 32, He's our God, great, mighty, awesome, keeps covenant, loving kindness. And so they reconnect with their God and their relationship with their God. And maybe that's where you are this morning. You just need to reconnect with God. You need to understand that he is our God. He is your God. He's not some distant deity. He's not that person's God and his God or her God. He is your God. And don't forget that. He is your creator. He is your heavenly father, you who know him personally. He is your God. Humbly worship him. And look at this. They acknowledge his greatness in verse 32. 
the great, meaning he's beyond comprehension in his utter vastness. He is limitless in his greatness. I love Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Have you seen the Atlantic Ocean people? Have you seen the Pacific? Have you been on the Fox River or the DuPage River and taken your oar just to measure how deep it is? He does it with his finger with the ocean. He holds it in his hand and he dips his finger and he tells you how deep it is. That's how great, that's how big, that's how vast our God is. He's marked off the heavens with a span. He uses a little ruler or a yardstick to measure the whole thing. Calculated the dust of the earth by measure, weighed the mountains in a balance, the hills in a pair of scales. He says, I want you to expand your vision of Almighty God. Stand in awe of his vast, immeasurable greatness. I love this quote by John Piper. It is about the greatness of God, not the significance of man. God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. Get a bigger vision of who your God is. Some of you have too small a vision of the greatness of God. Acknowledge his greatness, acknowledge his might. He says, the Almighty, Jeremiah 10, 12. It is he who made the earth by his power, established the world by his wisdom. By his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. He utters his voice with a, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens. He causes the clouds to ascend from the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings out the wind from his storehouses. This is your God, your God. Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Power beyond comprehension. Might that cannot be measured. That is your God, and there is nothing too difficult for him. Acknowledge his greatness and his might and acknowledge his awesomeness. It says in verse 32 that he is the awesome God. In other words, there is no other God. And I love how, how these words are used. The great, the mighty, the awesome God. You know, God had to set Job straight after Job dared question God. And God had a few questions back to Job just to give Job a fresh perspective of God. All you got to do is read Job chapter 38 through 42. And some of us need to read and let God set us straight. Some of us have been questioning God. Why, God, did you allow that? Why, God, did that happen? Why, God? And God needs to just question you. Here's some excerpts from Job 38 dealing with the earth and the ocean and the planets and seasons and stars and storms and the mind Job 38.4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding so you think you are so smart and you know it all, God says. Who do you think you are to question me? Who set its measurements since you know? Who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? Verse 8, who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth and went forth from the womb? I placed boundaries on it, set a bolt and doors. I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here your proud waves stop. Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you walked in the deepest parts of the ocean? Do you even know what's there? Verse 12, 
Have you ever in your life commanded the morning, caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth? Verse 17. Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you, been, have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this, if you think you are so smart to question God. Tell me. Where is the way, the dwelling of light, the darkness? Where is its place that you take hold, take it to its territory, and that you may discern the past to its home? Verse 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I've reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? You haven't seen snow like God has snow and ice coming someday to this planet. Verse 24. There is the way that the light is divided, or the east wind scattered on the earth. Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt? Verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? He's talking about the stars, the constellations, or loose the cords of Orion. Can you lead forth a constellation in its season, guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of heaven or fix their rule over the earth? Can you lift, verse 34, your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Just call forth water. Can you do that? I can do that, God says. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Does the lightning command your, the command at your voice? Verse 36, who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of heaven? He's saying you cannot do all of these things. He's saying stand in awe of your great, mighty, and awesome God. Now, he wants us to know, though, that he is more than power. He is personal. Verse 32, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness. He says, I'm not just about sheer power. I am person. He keeps kindness, or he keeps covenant. What does that mean? Well, he never lies. God always keeps his promise to you and me, 100% trustworthy, 100% of the time. And he's incredibly loving. The word here is hesed. It's, it's loyal, faithful, good, loving is what it is. So in other words, God says, yes, I am powerful, but my power is tempered with my love for you. Yes, I am mighty, but it is balanced with my mercy to you. Yes, I am great, but it is softened with my grace to you. There is none other like our God. So powerful, but tempered with love. So mighty, but balanced with mercy. So great, and yet softened with grace. That is your God. And if you're going to get back on track spiritually, you need to have a renewed appreciation for the Almighty. Secondly, you need to humbly point out your predicament. That's what they do. Look at verse 32, the second half. Do not let all the hardships seem insignificant to you. Why would they say that? Why would they say, God, don't miss all that's going wrong in our lives? Because these would be insignificant problems to an all-powerful God. It would be easy for him to miss your problems and my problems. They're really tiny. It'd be like walking down the sidewalk and someone saying to you, did you see that grain of sand? What? What do you mean, did I see a grain of sand? God, did you see this grain of sand? God, did you see this little problem in the eyes of you who are mighty? It is nothing. They're saying, God, please see this little grain of sand. Please see this little problem that I have that is nothing for you. 
Our, our big problems are minuscule to the one who holds the oceans in the palm of his hands and creates stars by speaking them into existence. We need to humbly ask God to take notice and we need to humbly ask God to look and to listen. And maybe our problem is our lack of humility. Maybe that's what our problem is. We need to humbly express the effects of spiritual derailment. Look what he says in verse 32. Which has come upon us, our kings, our priests, princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, on all your people. He's saying sin has affected everyone. Our sin has affected everyone. He's saying it's personal, us. It's civil, kings and princes. It's spiritual, priests and prophets. It's historical, our fathers. It's national, our people, all your people. In other words, everyone on the train is affected when it derails. The engineer, the conductor, the brakeman, the service attendants, the passengers, everyone, when a train derails, everyone is affected in some way. Sin affects everyone. Don't you dare buy the lie of the evil one that it's not going to hurt anyone else. Don't you dare buy the lie of the evil one that it only has to do with you. It'll affect your family. It'll affect your friendships. It'll affect your work relationships. It will affect everyone. It affected the nation of Israel. We see some of the effects in Lamentations 5. They ravished the women in Zion, the virgins in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung by their hands. Elders were not respected. Young men worked at the grinding mill. Youth stumbled under loads of wood. Elders are gone from your gate. Young men from their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us. For we have what? We have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes are dim. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate. Israel knew what it was like to spiritually derail. They were humbly expressing the effect of spiritual derailment, and they were humbly expressing not only that, how long they'd been suffering. It says from this day, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day, They're saying from from the mid-19th century B.C. to the mid-5th century B.C., hundreds and hundreds of years and generation after generation after generation. This was no short time. Assyria was the first of successive world powers to subjugate Israel and Judah after their bondage in Egypt. And it would be Assyria and Babylon and Persia followed by Greece and then Rome. Sin can sometimes have very long-term effects. Be very, very careful. How do you get back on track? Renew your appreciation for the Almighty. Humbly point out your predicament. Third, take full responsibility for any and all wrongs. Say that with me. Take full responsibility for any and all wrongs. Look at verse 33. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. In other words, don't blame God. And if you are here this morning tempted to blame God, go back and read Job 38 through 42. And let God put some questions to you. God, you are just. Don't argue with God. Stop pointing fingers at God. Don't you dare blame God. That's what fools do. 
Proverbs 19.3, the foolishness of man, what does it do? Ruins his way and his heart rages against who? So you got men who destroy their own lives and then point their fingers at God and say, God, it's all your fault. Oh, really? God didn't make you invest your money in that company. You chose to make that foolish decision. God didn't force you into that relationship. You chose to go into that relationship. God didn't encourage you to live that kind of lifestyle in that kind of sin. You chose to live that lifestyle in that kind of sin. Don't blame God. We have no one to blame but who? Ourselves. Blame yourself, not God. God, you are just in all that has come upon us. It was our dumb decision. Own up to it. It was our mistake. Take responsibility. Stop being so sinfully American. It's not fair. It's not my fault. The sayings of America. It's not fair. It's not my fault. We want no-fault lives. It has to be somebody else's fault. And we blame everyone else in this sue-happy nation, and we hire slimeball attorneys because we're greedy and egotistical and we're arrogant, and it can't be our fault. God is saying, when are you going to grow up and finally realize it's your fault? Take the blame. Don't blame God. Be honest with yourself. You've dealt faithfully, we have dealt act, or acted wickedly. God, you are faithful. It's not your fault. You are faithful. We are wicked. It's our fault. We are unfaithful. And he says here, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. He uses the pronoun we, not they. And he identifies, they identify with the entire nation. And they acknowledge their own guilt. And this is what the godly man Nehemiah did in chapter 1 when he prayed for the nation before he would go back to Israel to work on those walls. He would confess the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, nor your statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Instead of distancing himself from the sins of others, he said, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. Maybe it's time to take the log out of our own eyes so that we can see clearly. Maybe it's time to confess our own sins and start recognizing sin in our own lives. I've been reading Alan Redpath just recently. He was one-time pastor of Moody Memorial Church. I was studying his self-examination questions. These were questions he would use at all-night prayer meetings. That's convicting enough to hear that. Some of the questions that he would pose to himself were these. Just listen to these and maybe ask yourself these questions. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am a better man than I really am? Think on that a little while and let the Spirit of God work. Is there the least suspicion of hypocrisy in my life? Spend all night in prayer with God and ask these questions of yourself and ask God and His Spirit to reveal any sin in your life. Am I honest in all my words and acts? Am I reliable? Can I be trusted? 
Do I grumble and complain in my church? Is there anyone I fear or dislike or criticize or resent? And if so, what am I doing about it? Does the Bible live in me? Do I give it time to speak to me? Am I enjoying my prayer life today? Did I enjoy it this morning? Am I disobeying God in anything or insisting upon doing something about which my conscience is very uneasy? Here's another one. When did I last speak to someone else with the object of trying to win him for Christ? You know, maybe it's time we we stop blaming others and stop blaming God and maybe we need to come up with some self-examination questions of our own or use ones like these. Maybe we need to spend all night in prayer once in a while and let the Spirit of God work on us. And let the Spirit of God work in us. And let the Spirit of God expose any and all sin in our life. Because I'm telling you, we're not getting back on track spiritually until we do that. How do you get back on track? You renew your appreciation for the Almighty and you humbly point out your predicament and you take full responsibility for any and all wrongs and you trace your past and find the problem. Trace the past. Find the problem. Verse 34, our kings and our leaders, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions which you have admonished them. Okay, trace the past, find the problem. We see it right off the bat. They disobeyed the word of God. The word of God no longer was a priority in their life. And what God had to say and what God commanded and what God told them to do no longer was a a priority. And they didn't listen to it. And it started with leadership. Kings, leaders, priests, fathers. They had bad civil leadership, kings and leaders. They had bad spiritual leadership, the priests. They had bad family leadership, the fathers. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Proverbs 29, 12, if a ruler pays attention to falsehood, all his ministers become wicked. Leaders influence those around them for good or for bad. You influence those around you at work. You influence those around you in the family. One of the simplest and most profound definitions of leadership is this. Leadership is influence. Say it with me. Leadership is influence. Be a godly leader and influence the people around you at work for Christ's sake. Influence the people around you at church for Christ's sake. Influence the people in your family for Christ's sake. They disobeyed the word. And keep your law, paid no attention to your commandments, your admonitions which you admonish them. This was the heart of the problem. They disobeyed the law, they disregarded the commandments, and they ignored the warnings of God. That's spiritual derailment. Is there anywhere in your life you are disobeying the law of God? You will be spiritually derailed. Are you disregarding the commands of God? You are a crash waiting to happen. Are you ignoring the warnings and admonitions of Scripture? Trace it back. Listen to his word. Follow his word. Heed his word. Their problem was they disobeyed the word of God. They had another problem. They disregarded the blessings of God. Look at verse 35. They in their own kingdom, 
your great goodness which you gave them, broad rich land which you set before them. They didn't serve you or turn from their evil deeds. They were so blessed. All you have to do is read through Nehemiah chapter 9 and in its entirety. And God's blessings are itemized one after another after another. He gave them life. He chose Abraham. He heard their prayers. He delivered from bondage. He guided them, gave them commands, provided food. He didn't abandon. He instructed. He clothed them. He gave them victories. He multiplied their numbers. He provided houses full of every good thing. He rescued them. Unbelievable, itemized lifts of all the blessings of God. What blessings they took for granted. What blessings do you take for granted? Do I take for granted? Maybe it's that you have a home that you live in and all you do is complain about that house. You have a home. Maybe it's the school that you attend. Praise God, you get to go to school. The car that you drive, the friends that you have, the health that you do enjoy. Take for granted the husband that you're married to or the wife that you are married to. Take for granted the job that you have. All you do is complain about your job. You have a job. Praise God. Maybe it's time to count your blessings and see what God has done. Instead of whine and complain and take for granted what God has given you. They disregarded. They disregarded his blessings and as they disregarded his blessings, they refused to serve. There's an interesting connection here. They did not serve you. Understand the connection. A lack of appreciation for God led to a lack of service for God. A lack of appreciation for God led to a lack of service for God. Don't miss the connection. That's why some of you here do deadly squat for God. Because you don't appreciate Him. You think it revolves all around you and your schedule. And what's in it for you? The reason you don't do anything for God is because you don't appreciate God. You can't even give God one hour a month to work in a nursery because you're too busy. You don't teach and you don't usher and you don't serve and you're not in the parking lot and you're not on visitation and you're not using your spiritual gifts. You don't give God a dime. Do you know why? Because you don't appreciate God. You don't understand all that he's given or you understand it and you just don't care. Once you understand the connection here, a lack of appreciation for God leads to a lack of service for God. And when you finally start appreciating God, you will start serving God with joy and praising him that he saved your sorry, sinful soul from the pit of hell. And God, whatever I can do for you, I want to do it. God, I am yours. This body is yours. This mind is yours. These gifts are yours. These talents are yours. God, use me. That is a man or a woman, a boy or girl, who appreciates God. They did not serve you, nor did they turn from their evil deeds. I want you to understand something. If it's not about God, it's all about you. It's one or the other. If it's not about God, it's all about you. Is it going to keep being all about you? Or are you going to start making it all about God? How do you get back on track? Well, you trace your past and you find the problem. Then you share your sorrow and your suffering. You you let God know that your heart is hurting. Look at verse 36 and 7. Behold, we're slaves today. 
And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we're slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for kings whom you set over us because of our sins, and they also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. They share with God the sorrow of their slavery, and, and, it's, and it's shock. It's behold, we are slaves today. Behold, we are slaves in it. This isn't right, God. This was never how it was supposed to be, God. We have derailed spiritually. This is not where we are supposed to be. I want you to understand sin ruins God's perfect plans. That's what sin will do in your life and mine. It'll ruin God's perfect plans. It'll turn us into slaves. Interestingly enough, Romans 6 teaches, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? So you will either be a slave to sin or a slave to God. And he is such a much better master. The land of promise had become a prison. The land that you gave to our fathers to eat of its bounty. We're, we're slaves in it. Once this land of milk and honey, now a land of slavery and oppression. The sorrow of slavery. And then they share the pain of lost privileges. Verse 37. The abundant produce is for kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. And they rule over our bodies and over ca- our cattle as they please. And they were warned this was going to happen. Moses told them, Deuteronomy 28, 15, and then verse 33, it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe all his commandments and statutes which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. A people whom you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors, and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. Look at verse 34, and you shall be driven mad by the sight of what you see. God, what have we done to ourselves? God, how we have sabotaged ourselves. God, it's driving me crazy. This was not how it was supposed to be. You had such perfect plans for my life, and I've ruined them. That's where sin will get you. It'll drive you mad because of what God had given you, the privilege, and you forfeited it all. Not only that, The blessings were transferred to somebody else. Those kings and those foreign people. Do you realize what sin will do? It will transfer transfer your blessings to someone else. Someone else is going to enjoy what God originally meant for you. My brother's pastor down in Florida just recently came out. He had a few affairs. He no longer stands behind the pulpit at that church. One of the top 20 largest churches in America. He forfeited the blessings that God gave him. You will forfeit the blessings of your job if you're not careful. You will forfeit the blessings of your marriage if you continue in sin. You will forfeit the blessings of your children. You will forfeit the blessings of and write it in because of sin. It is serious, friends. Recognize the seriousness of it. And someone else will enjoy those things. Let God know the pain and the distress that you are in. He says, so we are in distress, great distress. You know, when I go to a doctor... I explain where it hurts. I tell them how long it's hurt. 
I tell him what I did, or I think I did. Come to the doctor. Say, God, it's been hurting a long time. God, this is what I've done. God, this is how long it's been hurting. Some of you just need to bear your soul before your heavenly Father, and you've not done that yet. You need to say, God, please, I'm in great distress. And be honest about your struggle and candid about your pain and straightforward about your suffering. And here's the good news. Great distress calls for a great God. Verse 37, just look at these verses. They are in great distress. Look at verse 19. But God, you're a God of great compassion. And then look at verse 32. You are a great God. And then look at verse 35. You show great goodness. So when you are in great distress, the thing to do is come to a great God because he will help and he will take care of you. Lamentations 3, 22 and 3. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new how often? Every morning. Great, great is his what? Faithfulness. He is a great God. How do you get back on track? Say it with me. Renew your appreciation for the Almighty. Humbly point out your predicament. Take full responsibility for any and all wrongs. Trace your past and find the problem. Share your sorrow and your suffering. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need to live in the fear of our God and the fear of what our sin can do to us. And for some of us here this morning, we need to get back on track. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Just take a moment right now and talk to the Lord. Just share your heart right now. Confess that sin that you committed this past week. What has the Holy Spirit revealed that needs to change in your life? Talk to God about it right now. Maybe there's an area of disobedience to his word. Maybe it's finally owning up and no longer blaming other people and no longer blaming God himself, but blaming yourself and taking responsibility. Do that now. Maybe you just need to cry out to God and ask for help because you're hurting. You're in great distress and you need your great God. Share your pain with him. Share your sorrow. Do that right now. Great is his faithfulness. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You may be here this morning and you've honestly never received the Lord as your personal Savior. You've been a religious person. You're spiritually curious. You go to church once in a while. But you have never personally asked the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior. And you may say, Scott, that's me. I I want God in my life. I I need forgiveness. I I want him. What do I do? In the quietness of your heart right now, I just invite you to call out to him in faith.
just use words like these. Lord Jesus, I desperately need you. I have sinned against you and sinned against so many. Please forgive me of all my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for loving me that much. Thank you that you're such a great God that you can handle my sin. I place my faith in you, Lord. I can't save myself. Please forgive me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.